This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is the great Stephen Pressfield. His latest book, A Man at Arms, is available everywhere right now, and it was such an honor that he asked me to blurb it because I have been a huge Stephen Pressfield fan for as long as I can remember. You might know him from Gates of Fire, Legend of Bagger Vance, Afghan Campaign, Killing Rommel, and the series of books that he has written on creativity, which are great, not just for authors, but anyone in the creative space. And I'd say anyone in general, because life is really all about leadership. And these books are really about taking accountability, slaying resistance, doing the work, and getting it done. So highly recommend The War of Art, Turning Pro, Do the Work, Authentic Swing, absolutely incredible series. You can find out more about all of Stephen's work at stephenpressfield.com. We recorded this in late May of 2020 up at Thunder Ranch in Oregon, where we were spending some time with Clint and Heidi Smith on the range. So enjoy this conversation. I sure did. Now, without further ado, the great Stephen Pressfield. It's uh, such an honor for me to, to sit down and, uh, and talk to Stephen. And this is the second time we've done something officially. The first time we did an Instagram live that uh, I forget how long it went, but it went, uh, we could have kept going for I don't know, hours, it seems. So um, anyway, Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much hey, for being here. Great to be here with you, Jack. Yeah. And we should probably say where we are. So we are at Thunder Ranch in Oregon, in Lakeview, Oregon, which is a shooting school owned by Clint and Heidi Smith. And Clint has been in the uh, the industry for quite some time. And we are up here going to do a little shooting course together and record some content and hang out and yeah. get away from the cities for a few days. So, uh, so here we are. Well, it's great to be here, Jack. Let's yeah. fire away. Yeah. So I think the best thing, because I have so many questions for you, and so I'm sure this will not be the only time that we do yeah, this. hope not. But, uh, but there's some things that I don't know about. Well, there's a lot that I don't know about you. So I want, wanted to explore from uh, Marine Corps time, from boot camp time, uh, through that, and then what happened in those, all those years between leaving the Marine Corps <laughs> and when, uh, when people uh, picked up that first copy of either Gates of Fire or Legend of Bagger Vance and, and, uh, and started down their reading journey with you. Well, it was, it was a long time, Jack. I, can we have like an hour and a half? Yeah, to do let's this? do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in, uh, in a nutshell, I mean, I was in the Marine Corps Reserve, so I was in for like six years going to you know, various you know, meetings and stuff like that. So I was in New York working as a, an advertising copywriter at Benton Bowles and at uh, Ted Bates and a couple of other places. And I had a boss named Ed Hannibal who quit to write a novel. And uh, I don't know if you know this at all, no, but I don't it, know that part. it was a hit. It really? was uh, uh, called Popsicle Chocolate Days, Popsicle Weeks, and it was a hit. So I was 23 or 24, and I thought, well, hell, I'll do the same thing. Did you think if he, this guy can do yeah, it, I can do piece it? Piece of cake, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so I, my life immediately went into the toilet at that oh point. You know, I spent a couple of years doing it, and it was like way over my head in terms of I had no clue what anything was, and I sort of. Uh, you know, I was married at the time, it blew, the marriage blew up, and I wound up kind of on the road for quite a while, working various jobs and stuff like that, and um, feeling a tremendous sense of shame that I had failed at this 
at this novel that I tried to write, and that you know I didn't have what it, I'd failed to be a provider to my wife at the time, et cetera, et cetera. So we can get into this in more detail if you want to. But I worked a lot of jobs and uh, over a long period of time, and um, felt like I was really in the wilderness. You know, it wasn't like I know your career. You kind of felt like you knew what you wanted to write, yep. and you got out of the seals, and you yep. kind of you know. And I give you tremendous credit because you did a couple books on spec. And so that was sort of what I was doing, but over a much longer period of time with a lot more failure in there. Well, did, uh, did those books, that first one, did that become one of the, your first novels that got published no. eventually? No, okay. No, I did uh, uh, three. Each one took maybe two years full time, and they never saw the light of day, and they shouldn't have. Like, a couple of years ago, I took them out of the drawer, you know, okay. out of the back room, blew yeah. the dust off, and thought, well, maybe, no. No, <laughs> no it's not really? even close, yeah. Interesting. So, uh, I bet there's a book right there about, uh, I mean, you, obviously we have uh, War of Art, which has a, a cult following, and has helped so many people around the world, not just in the creative space, but entrepreneurial space, and, and personally, leadership-wise, um, but... Uh, have you ever taken some of those pages with some of your edits and your notes? And and are there any of those in any of these uh, these books that I'm just not remembering right now? No, okay. I mean they just are in the dusty stack in okay. the back. Yeah, got it, got yeah. it. And uh, during that time, you were working. You, were you working your way across the country, or did you end up in L- when did you end up in L.A.? Uh, I actually was in California five different times, okay. trying to make the move from the East Coast to the West, okay. and I never could support myself. Um, I mean, I worked a bunch of jobs, like I, I drove trucks, I worked in oil fields, I taught school, I worked in a mental hospital, I picked fruit. I remember that. Uh, that's, a, that's in one and, of these, is, uh, talking about the picking of the fruit is in there. But also in that, so that it doesn't sound too much like On the Road by Jack Kerouac, okay. I also would go back to New York and work in advertising. Okay. And I would save money, quit, go somewhere cheap, write another novel that nobody would buy, <laughs> and... Uh, that was that sort of filled that time, and then at some point, I think it was in 1980, I moved to LA. Permanently. And um, that was the big, the permanent move. Yeah, I finally got to, and uh, about, and I wrote nine screenplays on spec, okay. none of them sold, none of them sold, and finally, maybe I'm getting into more detail. No, I love it. No, no, I, I had you touched a, on it in some of these, in these, uh, but I wanted to go in a little more depth. Uh, and uh, I had an agent named Mike Werner, who was a really good agent, and uh, he got tired of taking my stuff out and having it just bomb, you know, sink without a trace. So he said, what if I teamed you up with an established writer? And you could be kind of, you know, the junior partner in that thing. So he did, and uh, I worked for, I don't know, four or five years with Ron Chusset, who did the original Alien, oh, nice. he and Dan O'Bannon, and also did uh, Total Recall. And so I... I I worked with Ron for, and that was like a great apprenticeship for me. While they and were I, working on those uh, scripts for, for Total Recall or? Yeah, I was wow. like one of like 35 writers on that, you know? Is that a writer's room? No, that... I mean in, in sequence. You know, oh, one okay. guy would go and another guy would go and another guy and, then, and I was like number 27 or okay. something like that. But um, so that sort of was how I finally started to actually to make money as a writer and actually to support myself. And then uh, uh, Ron and I had a, a divorce. Yeah. And, uh, and then I, ha- I had a kind of another small career just as a solo writer. 
a screenwriter. Screenwriter, okay. And um, then this was still like, let me think, it was almost 30 years after I first started wow. trying to do this. Uh, the idea for The Legend of Bagger Vance came to me. And uh, this is in, I think, The War of Art or somewhere. Mm -hmm. and, um, but it came as a book instead of a screenplay. So anyway, I finally wrote that. And how, long then, did that how long did you, from the idea, uh, how long did it take you to finally say, okay, I'm going to write this? And then once you started to write, how long did that take you to get to that finished product where you said, this is, this is, there's something uh, here? That's a great question. I, uh, the idea came, and I thought, my first thought was, this is the dumbest idea that anybody's ever had. It's completely uncommercial. Who's going to want to read a mystical golf novel, right? Really dumb. And my agent, my movie agent at the same time, thought the same thing. And he basically <laughs> fired me. You know, he said, if you write this, forget it. I've been working for years to get you a career going. Now you're going to drop out, you know, and write a novel that nobody's going to buy, blah, 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 blah. So uh, we had a mutual parting of ways. And then I think maybe it was like all the bad luck and all the failure that I've had over those years, the pendulum kind of swung back. And the book kind of found a publisher right away, found a movie deal right away. I mean, right away. With a weeks. new agent. So now you've, you've somehow found a new agent. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and that agent, good, yeah. good deal for Just that one. Right away. Nice. And that, so, that was, so that kind of got me out of the movie business into the book business. And that was... 1995, I started in 1967, so however long that was. No kidding. Yeah. That's absolutely incredible. And so then, that's uh, why I'm in awe of you, Jack, that uh, you knew what you were going to do, <laughs> and you did it, you know? I, I didn't mess around. <laughs> I, 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 went, uh, I went all in. Uh, and when, you, when that second agent, I get asked questions about agents all the time. No, that's I, good, because it's answers. interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, I don't yeah. have good answers, because I kind of uh -huh. stumbled. I didn't know I needed one. Uh -huh. uh, so uh -huh. luckily, I didn't do uh, much research into that side of it. I put all my bandwidth into actually doing the writing uh -huh. instead of the business side of it, and uh, figuring out the business side of it came later later. But uh, when you transitioned agents, uh, how did you find your second one? Did you already have a relationship with that person? Uh, that's another great question. I, I had, from working as a screenwriter, I had an entertainment lawyer named Larry Rose. Okay. And so I just went to him. I said, Larry, do you know any agents? And he said, let me hook you up with Jody Hotchkiss in New York, who worked for Sterling Lord, who was the guy who's still my agent now. He's 99 years old. Wow. And he did the original deal of Jack Kerouac's On the Road That's amazing. in 1952, whatever it is. The offer was $900, and Sterling got him up to 1000 Hey. So anyway, hustled, hustled so, him. so uh, my, my lawyer, Larry Rose, turned me on to Jody Hotchkiss, who was really a books-to-movies agent. Okay. And... Uh, and working with Sterling Lord, so they took on the legend of Bagger Vance right away. But this was after being turned down by, you know, forever. Wow, that's amazing. I get that that question, and and uh, and, it's, yeah. and I, I can't really answer it because my path was uh, was a little different in that I knew from a very early age what I was going to do, and all those people I read growing up were my professors in the art of storytelling. And so when people think, oh, overnight success, well. Yeah, if you it, unless you go back to age seven, and, yeah, uh, right, and right, all right, these guys, and then at age ten, I'm reading Tom Clancy, and then I find yeah. David Morrell and Nelson DeMille and AJ Pollock and and JC or JC Pollock and AJ Quinnell and Mark Olden and all these guys back then who had 
antagonists with backgrounds that I wanted one day. Um, well, I guess it's kind of over many nights <laughs> if you uh-huh. go from age seven on, um, and then everything else that went into uh, studying terrorism and warfare and counterinsurgencies and insurgencies, and then applying that in Iraq and Afghanistan and the southern Philippines and in Haiti and all these other places around the world. And I guess yeah, overnight. But I don't. Yeah, there's no. I don't think there's any such thing as a really an overnight yeah. success. I mean, that was what when we first met. What really impressed me about you, because I have tried to write thrillers. I've always wanted to write a thriller. And you do it as if you're rolling out of bed, you know? (laughs) But when I I started to ask you, if you remember, what about the conventions of a thriller and the obligatory scenes and all that, how'd you know it? And when you started telling me about all the stuff that you'd read and all the things that you'd studied, I saw that, I mean, the depth of knowledge. I mean, you could do a PhD course in thrillers, you know, with your eyes closed. So for anybody that's watching this or listening to this podcast, there's no such thing as an overnight success. And that, you know, the depth of knowledge that you have, I mean, is like a brain surgeon in that, in that thing. Absolutely. And that's just the way it works. You know, there's no shortcut for that. I appreciate that. And it's, uh, you know, just like for the SEAL teams, just like studying all that, uh, all the warfare and knowing the history of counterinsurgencies and studying what people wrote, wrote in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and how that evolved in the 80s and how uh, different insurgencies then adapted to what uh, different counterinsurgents were doing to them. Um, that's part of the, the history of warfare. It's yeah. in your trade. And it's the same thing with writing, I think. It's uh, it's important to know the trade and not just to, to read a book and say, oh, maybe I can do this. Can I make money at this? And then no, I think it's important to know where it came from. Uh, all those people that came before who moved the ball forward, who yeah. just uh, just essentially copy somebody else out there, uh, but that moved the ball forward, whether it was by, by a lot or by a degree, but just moved it forward, moved yeah. the genre forward. So I think it's important to, to know the history of what you're doing, just like in any profession, I would yeah. think. And just my experience comes from warfare, of course, but knowing the history of the thriller. Yeah, and, uh, and who wrote these things, and at what point in time, what was going on in the world at those times yeah. when they wrote it, and why it resonated with people, or maybe why it took a little while to catch on, and then it did, and why was that? And just knowing all that background, uh, I think about that all the time as I'm writing, and I take it as a challenge and kind of a as my responsibility to those people who laid the foundation for me to move the ball forward a little bit, even if it's just by yeah. the slightest little degree, uh, and I owe that to the reader. Too. Yeah, um, and I think that I don't know if they thought about it quite in those terms. Uh, they may have, and if they didn't, then it doesn't matter because they still moved the ball forward, and they were still uh, they were still passionate, and they were still devoted to that to the trade and to the profession of writing. Yeah. So, uh, so I look at it as like that torch has been handed from these guys through the generations here, and then now it's my turn to take it and just have, uh, to, to do it as good as I possibly can for them and for the reader yeah. today. So I kind of I mean, it's like it if you see, terms. I'm just thinking as you're saying this, Jack, documentaries about Eric Clapton or Keith Richard, and they talk about how they studied the, the great blues guitarist, you know, I'm sure Keith Richard sat for hours and hours and hours trying to get a, a lick exactly right that B.B. King did or people that we've never even heard of, you yep. know? And it's all an homage, you know, on the and shoulders of forward. the people that went before you. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. They're moving it forward. Yeah. Uh, so so that's how I, that's how I kind of look at it. And there's still a lot of stuff out there that I've, of course, I'm, I, I can, I'm a st- I was always a student of warfare before I got into the military while I was in, and I continue the same thing today, but same thing with writing. I've always been a, a student of the craft, and uh, I was before the military, during the military, and continue that down that path today. So I think it's important to, to study the past so that, uh, that you can then evolve 
moving forward. Yeah. So, uh, and I love it. I, I love love going back and I love reading those old books and uh, novellas, short stories uh, through the lens of the time in which they were written um, because it's so easy to go back and read something, let's just pick, from 1982. And uh, someone reads that and they're like, what? That, and they don't really realize what was going on in the world yeah, at that time, yeah. the technology, what what the what the thriller genre had been before, leading up to 1982, uh, and just how groundbreaking maybe that novel was. When yeah, you're you should at teach it. a course in, co- <laughs> in college, Jack. Really, <laughs> I love postgraduate. It. I, yeah. I love all that stuff. Yeah. So it's uh, it's fascinating to me. And uh, and then for you, so switching from Legend of Bagger Vance to Gates of Fire. Um, so how did how did I guess what. How does that one transition and not just say, oh, I'm going to do another mystical football <laughs> book or baseball book or something along those lines? Um, you know, as you know, when you write one and it has any success, then they want you to do another one. Right. So, which I had never even thought of what the next one was going to be. But, you know, as you know, we've talked, I'm a believer in the muse and I believe that we're, as writers, we're following something from another level. And uh, so I had no idea what I wanted to do after Bagger Vance, no idea. And I was just, I was reading Herodotus, which I did for fun, I love the Greeks, and uh, came upon that passage of, you know, we'll have our battle in the shade. So great. And uh, I just thought, at that moment, I kind of thought, uh, I know that guy, you know? I felt like I could be in his platoon, mm-hmm. you know, and and, it really is it's a sign of like great writing or great storytelling or something that Herodotus could write something 2,500 years ago, whenever that was, mm-hmm. and reach right across the centuries and you're right in it, you know? Mm-hmm. So somehow I thought, okay, let me, let me tell, I could tell that story. Um, and uh, again, my first thought for that was, this is the dumbest idea anybody's ever had. I'm going to write a story. Americans don't care about anything that didn't happen in America, right? <laughs> so I'm going to write about this other country that nobody's ever heard of, the place that called Thermopylae that nobody can pronounce, nobody can spell, that was basically a losing battle, really wasn't emotionally. And so I thought it was really dumb, but I was just seized by it. And I'm sure you can relate to that, Jack. I was just seized by the idea. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one thing as a writer, you know this, doing your first two on spec, you have to kind of ask yourself, have, have I got two years so I'm going to give to this? on the come, yep. that there's going to be possibly no payoff at all. There's no contract. There's no deal. Nobody wants anything. But I just was seized by the idea. And at that point, you know, I had enough money to last for a couple of years. So so that was how, how that came about. And again, I was amazed that, you know, it sold very quick. Wow. Although I've had, I don't know if this is true for you or not, but books that I've sold to, I mean, to publishers, there's only been one buyer. Everybody else has rejected it. I've just found like one person, like my partner, my business partner, Sean Coyne, was the editor at Doubleday who went for Gates of Fire, and he had to sell the hell out of it. Mm. Um, wow. So anyway, that's, so that's how that kind of evolved. So there are two books that were completely different. Yeah. Um, but that was just the way it worked for me, being seized by both of them. Right. No, that then that line is so great, and uh, yeah. you know, it speaks to everyone really across across millennia. It's just it, uh, it, it if there's one line or one or two lines anyway that uh, that really sum up the the warrior ethos. Uh, that's that's it. 
that's it. Without missing a beat, uh-huh. or a battle in the shade. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, can I talk a little bit yes, about that line yeah. just so, for yeah. a moment? So the warrior ethos. For those of you that I'm sure, if you're watching this and you follow me, you know about the warrior ethos, and uh, you know who Stephen Pressfield is, and you probably have this book and have gifted this book. Um, and it was it was one of the ones actually. So I was getting out of the military. Uh, I was uh, I was assigned to the junior officer training course. And it was probably my most rewarding assignment in the military. And we had the officers as they had finished BUDS, finished SEAL training, and they still had another six months to go of SEAL qualification training. But we took them for a month, took them away from the class that they had been in BUDS with. Those guys continued on into SEAL SEAL qualification training. And we took the officers away for a month. And then they would rejoin the next class as it started in SEAL qualification training. So they had a whole new group of guys to lead that they hadn't been through Hell Week with, hadn't been through Dive Phase with, hadn't been through Land Warfare Phase with. But they had a series of books. So it was very, very academic in nature for the first three weeks. And then we did a one-week field training exercise up in the in the mountains, uh, kind of get away from the flagpole and be up there together. But the warrior ethos was the book that they had to carry with them everywhere. Really, so every I didn't know. Every SEAL officer uh. gets this gets this book, and uh, they have a few other ones that they that they get as well. But uh, this one is uh, it's not as heavy as the others. So this <laughs> one and uh, and this one uh, resonates with everyone that uh, that gets it. And you don't have to be in the military to uh, to get something out of this. It's uh, it's about leadership. It's about uh, the struggle that everyone's going to have to go through because you're going to get knocked down in life. You don't have to get knocked down in the military. You're going to get knocked down in life in general. Um, and uh, you're going to have to get back up. And really what defines us is how we get back up and, and move forward. But uh, The Warrior Ethos has... Uh, is this is this the book that you that most people reach out, out to you on? Or what, what is the one book of everything that you've written that people reach out or mention the, the most when they meet you? It's probably two. It's Gates of Fire and uh, The War of Art. Yeah. Um, but let me get back to flashback. Yes, we yes, can always, there's that. We can always cut this out of the podcast if you want to. But I just wanted to say for a minute about um, that line of from Thermopylae. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, I'll set the stage and I'll tell you yes. the story. You can cut this if it gets no, more. No. So the 300 Spartans had arrived at the pass, the narrow pass of Thermopylae, and seized it, waiting for the Persians, supposedly 2 million of them, to arrive. And they had allies. They had about 4,000 allies. But they basically knew that they were going to die. They were there to hold this for a certain amount of time. And, I, and, I'm, and as I try to imagine myself into that thing, they must have been scared, right? You know, what Thanks. was, you know, this is it. And uh, at one point, a native of the locality came running into the camp. camp. Now, the Spartans and the Greeks had not seen the Persians yet. They had no concept of what, what of how big it was. And the guy came in, and he was kind of frantic. And he said, oh, my God, I've seen them. I've seen them. They're, there's a, they're ships. they got a 1,000 ships. And there's so many of them that when their archers fire their volleys, the, the, it blocks out the sun. And I'm thinking, in that moment, if you're there, if you're one of those guys, you must have been pretty goddamn scared, you know? And so Dionicus just comes up with this quip and just says, good, we'll have our battle in the shade. And to me, what is so great about that is a couple things. First of all, I'm sorry to lecture here, but no, this no, is I an interesting story. Uh, the Spartans had a real sense of humor that was based on something really short and pithy. It always wanted something short and pithy, and that was sort of contemptuous of the enemy. 
you know, and uh, and also that it, so anyway, one of the things that's so great about we'll have our battle in the shade, I think, is it doesn't deny the reality of the situation. It doesn't say we're going to win, we're going to survive, something's going to save us. It really says what's implicit in subtext is we're going to die, we're going to die, but you know that we'll have the battle in the shade. You know, it'll be they can't scare us. Let them fire all the all they want at us. And the other thing about it is that it's very much about we, because I'm I'm sure you know this way way better than I do, Jack. That in those moments of of fear, when you know you're going to face the enemy and it's really going to be bad, each individual withdraws into their own cylinder of terror, right? Mm. Of I'm going to die, you know, or whatever it is. And so a quip like that brings it back to we. You know, we're going to have our battle in the shade. Like the other thing that King Leonidas said, and these are all true lines. I didn't make these up for a book. Nobody made them up. The, the thing of on the morning, the final morning, he said, now eat a good breakfast, men, for we'll all be sharing dinner in hell. And that's another one of those things. So that's powerful. kind of a laugh line, but it's also a we line. Yep. So that's that was one of the things. I couldn't have articulated it at the time, but when I read that passage in Herodotus, I think that was what grabbed me. I thought, that is the perfect thing for somebody to say at that time. A rah-rah speech would have fallen, would have been even worse, you know? Yeah would have really drained right. your, what little courage you had. So anyway, I'm sorry to blather on no. with that, but I wanted to say that. Oh, yeah. And people, I mean, since the beginning of time, I would think, and certainly in my experience, is that humor downrange in the most dire of circumstances is probably your most powerful tool uh, that you have uh, to, to inspire people uh, as they're looking to you for leadership to be being able to uh, to do something like that. I have just a couple word line, whether it's over the radio or whispered to somebody who needs it yeah. at the right time at the right place. Like that's the art. That's part of the art of that of leadership of combat leadership. Uh, and the guys get it too. I mean, it's the the, the E fours down there, the E five mafia, yeah. the E six, the chief that can walk by, the kind of the the older enlisted guy that can walk by and say the right thing at the right time, yeah. just like that. Yeah. So. I think that's why it resonates with people, particularly those who have been downrange. Uh, it doesn't matter which war, uh, but from the beginning of time, yeah. that, that humor that in the in the foxhole, uh, that is a powerful tool. And uh, and there was there was a good gap though between writing Gates of Fire and uh, having the Warrior Ethos come out. How many how many years was uh, was, was that? Uh, I think there was like six or seven books. Because mm -hmm. I then did four other books that were set in the ancient world. Yep. And uh, this book, The Warrior Ethos, actually was designed to promote another book, a book called The Profession. Okay. And you'll know this from working in the publishing business. We couldn't get any real promotion for this book. You know, the publisher wouldn't do anything for it. So Sean, my partner at the time, we thought, let's do another Let's do another book. And we actually printed the original version of this was much smaller. It was and it fit in it was designed to fit in a cargo pocket. And I don't know, maybe you knew this when you were downrange, but we did we we printed and we gave away eighteen thousand of these. Amazing. To units of special forces, Marine Corps, whatever, in Iraq and Afghanistan and in training here in the States. And um, the book is really 
it's not so much me talking about that. It's, as you know, it's um, anecdotes from the ancient world, yeah. from the Spartans, from Alexander the Great, from you know the, the Romans and stuff like that, that sort of illustrate, and a lot of them are these quips, you know, that somebody said. Oh, yeah. and uh, They're fantastic. So, those, for those watching, you can see my, my book has uh, do, is dog-eared and has uh, yellow stickies and, and all the rest of it. And and the, another great thing about this is that, uh, especially for someone who might be intimidated by something that's a little longer, like any, no one's going to be intimidated by the size of, of this book. It fits in the cargo pocket. You can take it downrange. It doesn't yeah. add too much weight to your pack, uh, yeah. that sort of thing. You can take it anywhere. Uh, and I think that makes it powerful as well because it's so succinct and says so much uh, uh, in, in not a lot of pages. Um, and it's just a beautifully done book. It's fascinating. I love it. So many team guys uh, will take this out before an operation or before something they do and read a passage from it. So um, they were talking earlier that, that you probably have no idea how many people all over the world that you have influenced through your, your work and through your story. Yeah, I don't. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and particularly through, uh, through these. And people ask me all the time, what should I read? Uh, I want to be an author or I want to do... Th- what, what, what did you read? What, what did you, how did you learn how to do this? And uh, of course, I tell them the, the backstory and, and all that I read growing uh-huh. up and all uh-huh. that sort of thing. But, uh, but these books right here on creativity, uh, to include the warrior ethos, um, these ones I read each one of these once, and then I put them within sight of me as I was writing that first novel. So it was like this right here. My computer was here, and I had these right there. So I didn't go to them and, and, and go back and look, but I read them all once and you can see how many, they're all dog-eared there, all these important, cool pages. Uh, but just having them that close to me physically, uh, if I got stuck on something and I love how, I think it was when you were on Joe Rogan, how you said something about, Hey, there's no such thing as writer's block. You're a professional. You sit down and write. The doctors don't get doctor's block. Truckers don't get trucker's <laughs> block or something along those lines. Uh, and maybe it's from here. because I say that? I so, sometimes, uh, sometimes, as you know, sometimes I've, uh, it's true. I've attributed, uh, I don't know whether they came from the books or an interview I've read or, or, huh. or, or listened on a podcast or whatever. They all kind of blended together over time. But regardless, I took that. And uh, if ever I came to a point where I thought, oh, how is he going to get out of this? Or uh, how many pages? do I have I written here how many more words do I need to get to I thought no you're a professional you sit down and you write there's no such thing as writer's block and that helped me immensely uh, as I started well that makes me feel really good Jack it's great to you know thank you for saying that oh of course and actually on my flight after I got out of the military uh, summer of 2016 and uh, the first book was pretty much done I was was still editing it but I started the second one before I even had before I even had a deal had an agent had a publisher all the rest of it. So I always knew I was going to write that second one. I always knew that True Believer, I was always going to do two because if the uh-huh. first one didn't hit, then I was always going to do the second uh, because of the John Grisham story where he wrote A Time to Kill and he couldn't give that book away and he could have quit right there, but instead he writes The Firm and then whoosh, off uh-huh. to the races we go and we have uh-huh. a legal, legal thriller every year uh-huh. since 1992 or whenever that was. Uh, so I always knew I was going to write two. So as I was doing the research, I flew to Africa, uh, to Mozambique, get boots on the ground, get uh, get some local flavor I could weave into the True Believer storyline. But on that customs form, going into South Africa first, and then you hop up to, to Mozambique, uh, one of those customs forms said profession. And... I wrote writer ah. and uh, I took a picture of it, ah. and, but I did that because of you and because of, ah. hey, you're a professional, you sit down and write. So turning pro, one of these books that, uh, if you read them all, you'll probably, you'll probably start with the, with the war of art and then you'll go to uh, turning pro or do the work, the authentic swing, um, all fantastic, but, uh, do 
the work turning pro. You, you decide in your head to flip that switch, become a professional. This is how professionals act. You sit down and you do the work. And uh, so, yeah, I wrote, wrote right uh-huh. in there, took a picture of it. Even uh-huh. though I, was, I didn't write author because I didn't, uh-huh. yeah, I didn't quite have anything published. It wasn't a, you know, I didn't have a publishing deal, but I was a writer. Uh-huh. And that was my profession. And I had switched in my mind from being a SEAL to now being out, making that transition. And now I'm a writer. And so it was pretty cool to, well, to write that on the customer. That was form. very wise of you, Jack, because I know for me, for like 30 years, I couldn't do that, you know? If anybody had said to me, are you a writer? I'd say no, because I haven't done anything, you know? But I was wrong, because I really think once you commit to it, you are a writer, or whatever, whatever it is that you want. You're a warrior, whatever it is. So, you know, you were very wise to do that, because well, it's self-reinforcement, and that's the name of the game in anything. Well, it wasn't my wisdom. It was you. It was, <laughs> it was thank goodness I found well, these books and, uh, and read them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I point people towards these all the time. And and uh, actually, going back to something else you said about investing time in something um, and is it worth two years of your life, three years of your life with not uh, knowing if you're going to get something published? Is there going to be a return on that investment of time? And uh, David Morell told me, and I think he writes about this in um, uh, in the successful novelist. Um, he writes a letter to himself at the start of every project. Ah. And he writes a letter to himself talking about why it is worth it for him to invest one year, two years, three years in all the research ah, and the writing that goes into that. something, and then he'll he'll print that off and read it back. And if it's if uh, if it's a good letter and it makes sense, uh-huh. uh, then it's right there. It's not just something that's arbitrary. Or it's in the back of your mind, or you think maybe it'll pay off, or I'm kind of interested in this thing. It's no, you've sat down, you put the thought into it uh, enough to write yourself a letter saying, "This is why I want to write this book," and it's because I want to go back maybe to 1873 and I want to explore that time period and I want to get to know that those those, those people and I want to tell this story and this is why it's worth it for me to do that and why I'm going to become a, a better fuller person because of I because I invest those two years uh, even if I don't get a return on that uh-huh. investment monetarily if it's not uh-huh. a financial success or it doesn't even get published I've still invested that time and I've made myself a better fuller person uh-huh. because of it and if it does get published people that read it will become better fuller uh-huh. people um, because they took the time to read oh, it oh that's so great it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's really good advice and I haven't sat down to do that uh, yet on a project but um, I, I probably will in the future I mean um, I would agree with that completely what David Morrell says that uh, because if the answer is, why am I doing this? I think it's going to be a hit, or I want money, or I want recognition. In my opinion, I know a lot of people do it that way, but you're, but you're wrong. Yeah. And you're on the wrong side of the spiritual thing. Yeah. Um, I think, or to, to look at it in another way, if you look at it from the point of view of the muse, of the goddess that is kind of inspiring you and had put that idea in your head, if you don't do it, there's going to be a price to pay. There you, go. you know, uh, you it, it's a psychological, or a, I don't know on what level, on right. the soul level, I suppose. And uh, so I think David Morell is exactly right that, that uh, you're seized by something. It's really, for me, you getting an assignment from the goddess, just like mm-hmm. you would get it in the military. You yeah. know, here are your orders. Right. Here's your orders packet. Mm-hmm. And you know, do you have a choice? Well, maybe I won't do this. You know, you really don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. And I also find, and I'm sure you agree with this too, Jack, that when when it's legitimate and you really are getting it from this other dimension, you get a tailwind. 
when you start, oh, yeah. you know? A weight lifts off your shoulders, and you, you are fired with a, an enthusiasm for something. Mm -hmm. And uh, even in the, in the real world, events start to break in your favor, at least for a while. You always are going to hit, you know, resistance points along the way. But, yeah, so I, I would agree with that. I've never heard of that writing a letter to yourself. I'd sort yeah. of do it in my mind. Right. I just ask myself, am I out of my freaking mind to want to do this right. thing? Or And usually I'm just so seized by it that I don't have a choice. Yeah, it's that calling. It's that yeah. like you can't not do it. Yeah. And I think it would be miserable to sit down and do something just because you think it might be a hit or it might there might be financial gain at the end of it or uh, you'll get some recognition at the end of it. Um, that would be just kind of like everything else I don't want to do. Uh, that's why I'm not in finance or I'm not an attorney. Uh -huh. not, I, I don't do anything else. These Although a lot of people do it that way. A lot of writers do do it that way, but I don't know. Yeah, but you know, speaking, imagine. did you see that uh, there was a documentary about Linda Ronstadt that's mm -hmm. been on called Linda Ronstadt, The Sound of My Voice. Okay. It's really great. If anybody hadn't seen it, they should see it. Okay. But she makes a point a few times, you know, Linda Ronstadt was not a writer of material, but she would find great songs and make them her own. Yeah, you know, like once she sang, you know, Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me or Desperado or... Uh, uh, nobody else could sing it again, you know, because she was so great. But what she would say was, I can't not sing that song. That's great. And that's, that's really sort of the same thing that we're talking about. Yeah, no, absolutely. You, and you can tell when you read it, I think, as a reader, uh, you can tell if someone is invested in that material and invested in that process for the right reasons. I think you can tell. Yeah. Um, there's something that rings truer about it uh, when it's a calling rather than yeah. just... You can a, tell on the first page. Mm -hmm. Yeah, rather than yeah. just a, a career move. Yeah. Uh, I think there you can definitely, the reader can tell. Uh, and especially today, when you're talking about it or you're, uh, you're, on, you're posting pictures about it or whatever else, like it's... Uh, you can just tell. Yeah, because, uh, people have that sixth sense about things, and and it's uh, it's innate to them that uh, they 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 have that. You can tell things about people and uh, and about what they're what they're selling, uh, and if they're really yeah. really behind it and really invested in it for the right reasons or not. Uh, you know, I, this is a really interesting question. That I've never been able to define in my own mind. It'd be great if we could do it right while we're talking. But I, it also applies. Like I'm thinking about the first three novels that I wrote that were no good. They were sort of inauthentic in a different way. It wasn't like I was knew what I was doing and I was doing it for the wrong reasons, but I was I didn't know what I was doing and I was doing it for the wrong reasons. In the sense that I felt like I wasn't a real person. I didn't have a real sense of myself on the planet. Hmm. I felt like and I felt like I was trying to write my way out of that. And so there was something like when if you were to read these three books that didn't get published, you could tell it right on the first page huh. that I was sort of trying to write above my head or or prove to myself that I existed on the planet. And and that's like the worst reason in the world, although I think you have to go through that stage, or at least I did. And what I really don't couldn't really define as we're talking Jack writer to writer is what changed. But at some point it did change. Mm -hmm. And, and I then could write on and on, and you'd read the first page and you go, ah, this is for real. And it wasn't a matter of skill either. 
Um, I'm trying to define it. Yeah, it's almost like that Zen state or that flow state or that uh, your calling matches with the right time and the place and material and you're just called to do it rather than forcing it. Uh, It seems like it's that natural thing. You can't not do it. You're naturally called to it, I think, rather than, okay, I want to write a book. What should I write a book about? Okay, this, this, this sounds kind of interesting. Okay, let's, let me dive in and force it. And it has um, something to do with the removing the ego from it. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying this now as we're talking. I don't even know. But it, it, for me, those early books were full of ego and real needy ego, okay. you know? And at some point, I think, maybe you flip a switch, you turn a corner, and there's a certain element of, of giving a gift to it that you are, you're writing for the reader, Mm-hmm. And wanting to take them on a ride, mm-hmm. you know, on a on a trip, on an yeah. e-ticket trip, if you can. Nice. Um, anyway, I don't know. We're probably getting too deep into some of this stuff. No, but, I love uh, it. You can tell. I mean, you can tell that you're you're you're, uh-huh. you're called to write these things, and you're doing what you were what you were born to do. And uh, and now you're sharing it with the that journey with the rest of the world through uh, through these uh, these books on on creativity. And I was gonna, I wanted to ask. Where did the idea of, of course, the muse has been around for a long time, but how you uh, interpreted that, uh, that, that, that muse and that resistance that comes along, and how did you merge those two? Like, when did you, uh, in your head, say, ah, there's this thing called resistance, and there's this muse out there, and you know what? I, uh, let me share this with some people here in The War of Art and then these other books as well. Like, when did those... Did you like? Were you in 1985 saying, "Ah, oh, this resistance thing is no, getting me"? No, in fact, uh, it took me a long time to sort of uh, define it in my own head that way. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Because the bottom line was, I was just getting my ass kicked by resistance. You know, being afraid to finish something. You know, going the wrong way once I was in it, and it was just defeating me over and over and over. And I had no idea what it even was or it even existed. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure when the the idea sort of coalesced to name this force, mm-hmm. resistance. But I, I very much felt when I would sit down to the keyboard that there was this force, radi- this negative force radiating off the keyboard or the blank page yeah. saying, you know, Duh, do something else, you're no good, et cetera, et cetera. And it, at some point I sort of gave it a name in my mind, but I... I'd been doing this for a long time, for like 15 years before that even crossed my mind. And then when um, friends would come to me, and I'm sure you get this all the time, Jack, and say, I've got a book in me. I know uh, I do now. Know, I my the- uncle's story, my grandmother, right. you know, crossed the prairie. And I would sit up with my friends like all night long, you know, till two in the morning, trying to psych them up, you know, oh, you wow. can do it, you can do it, you know, and they would all come up with all the reasons, oh, I can't do it, I've got a job, I've got a husband, blah, 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 and I would sort of define for them this thing, resistance, you know, and say, that's not your voice, it's this thing, da-da-da-da-da, and finally once, and of course, nobody ever did, nobody ever wrote it, nobody ever listened to me, you know, <laughs> and... One time I had a sort of a break between books, like a few months, and I thought, well, let me just write this down. And then when anybody asks me again, I'll say, here, read this. It saves a lot of time that way. Yeah. And so. And then you took it one step further and you can say, oh, buy my book. Here's yeah, my website. I never, I never thought of it. It's about available that. here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that, that but that came out better. in 2002. So I'd already been trying to do this stuff for about 20 something years or more than that. That's you know, amazing. Yeah. And then the latest one is no one is uh, nobody wants to read your shit in this series. Is that is there another? Well, one? actually, there's one, one called The Artist's Journey that I don't. Th- yeah. What? 
Did I miss one? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, I got to give that to oh. you, Jack. Yeah. I'm going to buy it. I'm ah. going to buy it. Oh, okay. It'll be $1.75 in my pocket. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I get how that works. <laughs> yeah, that's now. the most recent one. Oh, interesting. I don't know how I missed that one. It, uh, but yeah, thank you for, for doing this. And let, before we, uh, we move on here, um, maybe we should talk about why we're, what we're doing up here at, at Thunder Ranch. People might be interested in, uh, in that. Um, is the last time you shot something, was it uh, Paris Island? Well, no, I think it was a Camp Lejeune when we were actually out in the, in, okay. the, in the, you know, or in the reserves, you know, in our, but it's been a long time. Was it I Paris have, Island? Did you I have not, yeah. Paris Island? Okay. Yeah. Wow. But I have not shot a weapon in however long that is, a long time. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a day or two. So actually, we're here at Thunder Ranch because you are uh, very good friends with Clinton Heidi, and you invited us. You know, Diana, my girlfriend, yes. sitting over there, and me. And uh, so otherwise, we would never have known or even come here. You yeah. Know? So thank you. Oh, my goodness. We haven't done anything yet. We haven't yeah. been out on range. We don't know what we're doing. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what it feels like. Amazing. You know? Amazing. Maybe there's some, uh, and you said, was it a, uh, an M14 that you, you shot back in the Marine Yeah, Corps? yeah. So maybe there's one of those around here we can <laughs> dig out. I'm sure yeah. Clint has one, so we can uh, we can pull one. Well, of I'm those really out interested well. to watch you shoot ah. because that's you know that's the real deal. Well, it's uh, it, once again, it's uh, I made that transition from the military, and in my head, I uh, flipped that switch and said that is something that I that I did, and it's a huge part of me going forward. Um, but I don't live back there. But same thing, I try to keep my skills up as best I can, uh-huh. and uh, and get out and shoot whenever I uh, whenever I get the opportunity. Just keep those skills up because I think it's uh, my responsibility as a uh, as a citizen and as a husband as a father to, to protect my family and um, just that, that piece of self-reliance has been with me from from the earliest of times uh-huh. I remember ever as a kid uh, not being interested in uh, survival or not being interested in uh, you know how to box or wrestle or whatever it is or improving my martial skills um, shooting in particular so uh, I'm excited to get on the range this is gonna be awesome uh, yeah. yeah amazing and uh, we've been going for what four 45 minutes or so. So um, yeah, I want to wrap this one up. And before we do, though, I want to thank you so much for uh, your inspiration, for sharing your, your story, and uh, more so for sharing your gift with the world. Hey, thank you, Jack, for having me. Thanks for your friendship. Absolutely. And uh, I hope that this goes on for a long, long time, for the rest of the, the duration. Me too. Me too. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll do this again sometime. Okay, great. Thanks, All Jack. Right. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. You can find out more about Stephen Pressfield at stephenpressfield.com. Be sure to pick up his latest book, A Man at Arms. Definitely read Gates of Fire, Legend of Beggar Vance, Killing Rommel, Afghan Campaign. He has been mentioned in quite a few of my reading lists, and you can find those at officialjackcar.com, or you can go to Instagram at jackcarbook.com club. So pick up his books on creativity, check out everything he has going on, go to the website, follow him on his social channels, and I cannot wait to find out what he is working on next. You can go to my website, officialjackcar.com to find out what I have going on there. You can pre-order In the Blood, which is coming out in May of 2022, the fifth book in the James Reese series. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels and you can go to jackcarusa.com for the merch until next time take care stay safe be strong keep fighting
case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy exactly. or right. Right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.